Hello and welcome to Non-Breaking Space, which you can find online at nonbreakingspace.tv. Non-Breaking Space is a show where we'll seek out the best, brightest, and smartest folks on the web and talk to them about how and why they do what they do. Your hosts are Christopher Schmidt and Dave McFarlane, two web designers, authors, and trainers who have a passion for sharing knowledge about the web. I'm Chris from Canada, web designer and podcaster Christopher and Dave have invited along to help push the record button and keep everyone on track here on Non-Breaking Space. Our guest for this episode is Matt Griffin. Matt is a designer and one of the founders of Bearded. He has a great love for letterpress printing and is an advocate for collaboration in design and has been published in a list apart and .NET magazine. Matt's one of the creators of Woodtype Revival, a successfully kickstarted funded project which seeks out lost historic wood type and converts it to, into digital fonts for modern designers. So without further ado, I'll turn it over to Christopher and Dave and their conversation with Matt. Thanks, Chris. Hey, Dave. How's it going? Hi, Christopher. Uh, it's going well. I'm updating my CSS book and... You know, it's a real pleasure to go through that and then just strip out all the stuff that says IE6 has this <laughs> problem in it. And so look out for that. Right. And uh, even, you know, uh, cutting out stuff about IE7 since right. I don't know. I, I think the last I saw with market share of IE7 was down to like 1.7% right. uh, internationally. And I, I don't know what it is in the US, but I, I imagine it's even. Lower than that, so yeah. And plus, uh, yeah, the rule of thumb is just to wait, and I mean, not to wait, but just check your your own site's log files to see how how much traffic you do get for the uh, for these older browsers, and see if you can just drop support, right? So yes, absolutely. But it's nice in writing the in updating the book to just be able to <laughs> strip out all these workarounds for IE six. Yes, it's, it's easier IE seven. Yes, I find it's easier to edit than to write. So it's, <laughs> but. Uh, Oh, yeah, and then also with, with even with the uh, drop of IE, you know, which is okay. We also like the recently uh, list apart had an article about, uh, you know, game consoles now browsers, right? Mm-hmm. So so this whole uh, I don't know another headache, if you will, for you know we have like smartphones, tablets, and now we have uh, game consoles, or um, or it might be just the uh, people's only or main w- ways of uh, getting onto the web, you know, is through uh, after. You know, right. kicking some butt on a on a, a game, they can just like, hey, let's go surf the web and so that. So, and that opens up a whole new can of of, of worms. And so, I'm not yeah. saying it's going to be as bad as uh, IE six, but uh, it's something to think about. Yeah, and, definitely. Uh, so, and that's why I'm really happy to to have our guest on, uh, who's who uh, runs a shop um, and has been focused uh, recently on the responsive web design. Is uh, is is Matt? Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, thanks a lot, guys. I'm glad to be here. Cool. Well, I. Uh, Tell us, like, how did you get into web design, and, and like, what led you to the path to 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 making websites and and running an agency? Oh wow! Well, it's it's been a long and treacherous path uh, for me. Uh, I actually, when when I went off to to college, I went to school for music and uh, audio recording, and I was playing in rock bands and things. And uh, I stopped that degree about, gosh, a semester short of graduating um, to the to the glee of my parents and uh, just played in, played in little indie rock bands and stuff for about five years um, before coming back to school finally for design. Um, and in the, during that period, um, I was, you know, the, the web was pretty exciting. So this would have been, oh, around 95, 96 is probably when I started school. Um, and the web was a very exciting place to me at that point. We had, um, we had animated GIFs of, of flames to put on our websites and little men <laughs> with digging shovels until we were complete. And, uh, I loved it. I mean, I, I had a GeoCities account and 
and <laughs> <laughs> it was awesome. And like like everybody else, you know, I didn't put cats on mine, but like everyone else, I was just trying to figure out what this thing called an HTML was, and uh, and that was it was a great time. It was very exciting. Um, I would, you know, I made websites for my bands mostly. Um, later, I got a job at an at an ISP doing tech support, and I ended up <laughs> being the webmaster for their website somehow. <laughs> um, this is a horrible uh, tables-based thing. And that's when I started learning about the joys of table-based layouts, and I, I just hated it. Um, so I started becoming less interested in the web around then. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when we came around to, you know, to Flash sites, I, I was really unexcited about that. <laughs> that seemed not at all interesting to me. Um, so when I, was, when I went back to school, that's, Flash was pretty dominant at that point. Um, and that's when I got really into letterpress and started focusing more on, on print and particularly traditional print work. Um, after I, I got out of school for the, for the second time uh, and started working professionally, that's when I was introduced to um, you know, semantic markup and and CSS-based layouts, and I thought, like, oh, this is much better. This is a, a kind of web I can be interested in and, and work mm-hmm. with. It, it makes sense to me. Uh, whereas Flash was this very black box kind of opaque thing. Right? Well, 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 how did you get into semantic like markup and some of that? Like, I, you, you graduated college, right? And then you just yeah. And then then you're just like, hey, semantic markup. You know, yeah, well, it was my it was my first job at an agency, and okay. um, they were doing web work, and they wanted me to do web work, and I was like, no, I don't want that's I don't like that stuff. I've done that before, and it's terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they they said, well, it's you know too bad. That's, that's those are the projects we have for you to work on. So go figure it out. And uh, luckily, one of the guys, the senior designer that I was working with there, um, was was into um, CSS based layouts and semantic markup, and so he showed me that the web wasn't as awful as I had experienced before. And, and then I started getting really into it. it um, I, I love the idea that the, the separation of style and content and the fact that the, you determine the structure of, uh, of the markup through the meaning of, of what you're writing. I mean, that just makes a lot more sense to me. Um, and the methods that CSS uses, I, I, people talk about liking graphic interfaces for design and, and how designers love that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But like the Flash interface was always a beast to me. It hmm. just never made any sense and right. uh, I never felt comfortable um, with it. So I, I don't know. I just I, I was a lot happier working directly with CSS than than with an interface <laughs> or with you know Dreamweavers, um, WYSIWYG or anything like that. Right. Um, and then of course when you know I, I guess after that period of time um, I, I started Bearded um, with a developer named Michael Hellion. Um, he was working freelance and needed a designer, and we decided to join forces and start a thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at the same time, Carnegie Mellon University, which is here in Pittsburgh, offered me some teaching uh, as an adjunct, so that gave me a little bit of dependable cash, so I decided, what the heck, let's, let's give it a shot. Right. Um, he was really into building Drupal sites at the time, so I, I started learning all about CMSs, um, which was which was different for me, a different way of thinking about design, knowing that the content was going to be so variable and controlled by the client. Um, and it, it was right around that time that I started um, getting together a conception of designing for the web that to me felt very starkly different than how I and other people design for print. Um, the idea that instead of creating this static thing, this sort of poster of what a website looks like, we should be really thinking about it in terms of as a flexible content delivery system um, that we were designing. So we're creating sets of flexible rules that define define how the design works in different situations. Um, For instance, it's it's much more useful to have a really well thought out typographic hierarchy um, visually 
than it is to, I don't know, um, have one wicked page layout that's never <laughs> actually going to happen <laughs> on, a, mm-hmm. on a website. Um, so that's kind of where my brain was uh, around that time. And then, you know, Ethan Marcotte's book, Responsive Web Design, came out. And that, to me, really spoke directly to the concerns I had about designing for the web. Um, and that we could really be creating these flexible things um, in terms of the actual structure of the layout um, that would change based on not just things like display and, and resolution and operating system and, and, and browser version and all these other things I was worried about, but that it really got down to the crux of the matter, which was the, the viewport, right? right. Uh, and and which, which handled conveniently the burgeoning mobile market <laughs> <laughs> that we're all very focused on right now. So is is Bearded still a two person shop or is it is it Oh no we grew over the so we're about gosh uh three and a half, we're almost four years old. We'll be four years old in November. Oh. And we're six people. Uh so we have two back end developers, a front end developer, two designers, and a project manager. Mm. Uh although those titles are not completely accurate, there's a lot of overlap. So the designers do some front end coding and uh the back end developers also do some front end and uh it's uh, we move around a lot depending on where we're needed. Okay. Well, like, since you're like you're focused on responsible design, how has the transition from, I guess, desktop design, I guess, if you will, for uh, desktop web yeah. design been to move into responsible web design and working with clients? Like, ha- have you seen clients come to you asking for responsible design, or is it just, yes, or is it just part of your pitch? It's, well, now I mean, it's part of our pitch. We have a mix. There definitely there are clients that have no idea what responsive web design is. Um, there are clients that are practically saying what's a mobile, um, but <laughs> certainly uh, there are people that are that are aware of mobile but think of it as a separate mobile site. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There are people that are aware of responsive. They may not know exactly what it means, but they know they're supposed to have it. Um, and then there are people that just have no clue. Um, and so that's part of our our pitch mm-hmm. is you, we're we're doing all responsive sites at this point. Um, every site that we create is created. Um, are designed using code and browser based. I hate saying in browser design because that sort of doesn't make sense to me because you don't actually design in the browser. You just view it in the browser while you're designing. So I'd say code and browser based design and responsive is is everything we're doing now. So you were talking about the pitch that you give to clients for responsive web design. Let's say, for example, I'm a client. I come to you and I say, all right, well, we need two websites. We need one for mobile and we (laughs) need one for the desktop. And how do you convince them otherwise? Well, I, I mean, I guess I think my first question is, is what does mobile mean? Um, I think that's a very hard thing to define right now. To, you, could, you could say, you come up with a list of devices that are mobile right now, and that might be helpful. Um, but knowing whether someone, even if they're using a device that we define as mobile, is, uh, needs a mobile experience at that moment is really questionable. Um, particularly when you look at the statistics of people who are using mobile devices as their primary device for connecting to the internet. Um, I mean, for instance, at home, I'm one of those people. I have a, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, <laughs> which means I never mm-hmm. get to go upstairs to my desktop computer. Uh, if it's the weekend and I need to look something up online, I'm pulling out my phone. Um, and that means that I want access to everything that's on the regular site. Um, and limiting users from getting to the content they need is, is just not a good experience. Um, so I guess, I guess that's part of the pitch, mm-hmm. is, is content parity, right? Mm-hmm, you, right. you want to be serving the same content to everybody. But the other thing is, we don't want to just be designing them sites for, for right now. We want to be designing for the future. Um, the, the proliferation of mobile devices is going to accelerate. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just mobile, but we're worried about mobile right now. But the question is, what are we going to be worried about six months from now or next year or two years from now? 
Mm-hmm. And if we're designing a, a system for, for their content that's going to adapt to whatever format it's given, even if that's something we don't know about in the future, um, that's going to be a much better strategy than saying it needs to look good on the iPhone 5. Yeah, and certainly there's a, a cost-benefit argument where you say, well, you know, we can build one website that will work across these devices that we know about now and the ones that we don't know about later, whereas if we go with individual websites, who knows when that will end? We might have to build another one for a different device, different uh, you know, screen resolution, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think that's probably a pretty powerful argument to you know, cost-conscious clients, which are pretty much all clients. And I mean, the devices, are, I mean, how can you possibly keep up? And the answer is you can't. Um, there are new devices coming out constantly. I mean, look at the whole tablet wars thing that's in the news mm-hmm. right now, right? I mean, we can't keep up with that. So let's not keep up with it. Let's design <laughs> something that takes care of all of it. Uh, and the, I mean, the other, the other question is the whole uh, linking thing, right? Like, what if I'm on your mobile site and tweet about it from my phone? Mm-hmm. And then someone opens my mobile link on their desktop browser and gets a horrible experience. Why? Right, right. <laughs> why would be? We're trying to predict something that we actually can't predict, right. which is who's mobile. Um, so I often I've been making a joke a lot lately when people talk to me about mobile experience or, or I'm just trolling people on Twitter about mobile experience or something. <laughs> my response is often, "What's a mobile?" Yeah. Um, uh-huh. Which I I made as a joke earlier about clients, but I ask that question quite seriously a lot. Is what's a mobile? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Right. So you've written a little bit about and given some thought to um, game consoles and handheld game consoles and how that affects what, how we're designing, especially with responsive web design. Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about, you know, what, well, first off, what game consoles are there that I, because that's not really on my radar. I don't have a game console that I, you know, surf the web on. Maybe you could talk about what game consoles there are and then what the challenges are for designing to, to those. Sure. Uh, I, so, and just to be clear too, I, I didn't write specifically about game consoles, but uh, Anna Demonham did, um, and she wrote a terrific article on List Apart recently, where she goes into great depth. And I have immense respect for her, if for nothing else than browsing on a Wii for more than about thirty seconds. Because <laughs> I, I have a Wii, and I've you know I got the web browser thing, and I went and used it, and was like, wow, I'm on the web. Sort yeah. of. And then it was like, this is horrible. Right. I can't point at things with a. I've never been able to point at things with a Wiimote. So yeah, yeah I just uh, I, I don't understand. But yeah, I read the article, but I was just like, is it because I'm so used to surfing on the on a desktop browser, and this is part of my job, where I can't stand to be on a game console browser, but yeah, I, but is it, it? But it's a different experience for someone who isn't on it. You know, doesn't have a laptop, doesn't have a desktop. I and, think the demographics she was giving too is that a lot of it's much younger users, like yeah. like teenagers who mm-hmm. spend a lot of time on their game console. So mm-hmm. those movements are very natural for them. Right. I, I, I would be surprised if the statistics for Wii um, internet browsing were as strong as anything else, just because it's such a wretched user experience. Right. Um, right. But maybe that's just me getting old. You know, like I can barely point at the any of the <laughs> main menu icons and right. click them to get my experience started right. on a Wii. And then as soon as I do, I, I'm using the arrows. Right. And I, I, God, if Nintendo would build in the arrows into the main whatever. Uh, navigation system, yeah. uh, you know the the arrow pad instead of mm-hmm. like pointing right. at things. Oh, I'd be so happy. I can't. <laughs> I can't point at things to save my life. Right, and like and even with the Apple TV, like which is like 
plus B uh, is, is great user experience. Like whenever I have to type in a password for the Wi-Fi or whatever like that, oh, I just groan. Like uh, it's just like uh, oh, typing's the worst. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I pull out the iPad, and yeah. then you know you can link your iPad to it. So oh, nice. I type it out on the iPad to oh, sweet to do that. Yes. So I that need a keyboard pain. on the Wii. Apparently, that's like when I have to set up my Wi-Fi on that thing. Oh God. Yeah. Typing in a password, yeah. yeah well, but, uh, so anyway, one of the things that she mentioned that I thought was really interesting were these uh, portable devices. Um, so on this article, which I'm looking at right now, she has like the Sony PS Vita or Vita, I'm not sure, uh, the Nintendo DS1 and the Nintendo 3DS XL, uh, as well as some other uh, console phones, uh, which, which she talks about being primarily game consoles, but also a phone. And I think... I think the main example is this uh, Sony Ericsson Xperia Play, which is quite a name. Um, but the thing that a lot of these things have in common is they tend to have really wide but short screens, um, which is similar to um, a comment that Andy Clark made recently on Twitter about um, the iPhone 5 that you've got. He referred to it as, he said something like, uh, you know, it's going to be a really difficult browsing experience in portrait mode on an iPhone 5 because the screen's even shorter. And when he said that, I thought that's a, that was an interesting way to phrase it because it's it's not any short. I mean, we all I'm sure Andy knows it's not shorter. Um, it's the same height as the other one, but it's longer. And I think from a responsive designer perspective, the way we've all started thinking about designing for responsive, we we're very very width focused, and so we've made this assumption that wider means taller. Um, and in these cases, like an iPhone 5 or these, these portable game consoles, that's not true. They're actually pretty panoramic. Mm-hmm. So they're getting a wider layout because of our width-based media queries. And they're, they're scaling up the height in a lot of cases. They're assuming that the height is increasing and designing accordingly. Um, so that's just like a, it's a weird, potentially false assumption we've been making. Sure. Wider means taller, right? Um, so the, what I was trying to do with addressing that, and, and they're just some sort of initial thoughts, was using height-based media queries um, to to deal with that a little bit. Um, I, I'm, I think I suggested a few different approaches, one being um, having something at the end of the media query cascade, which is just short um, partial. Uh, we're, we're using SCSS, but uh, we'd, we'd have a short partial on there that would... Um, it's like a final chance to override some of the height-based stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a little heavy-handed, and you wouldn't want to get too detailed with it, but it, it lets you... For instance, I was overriding a few things um, where I was scaling up typography or adding margins to the outside of the website to try and deal with that claustrophobic effect and, and overly long line length that you get often on, on widescreens. But in this case, that's you you'd probably actually want to use as much of the width as possible right. uh, so that you get more stuff on the screen, right? Um, above the mythical... Fold. Um, well, in most of these devices, are, they're they are just landscape. You can't exactly. turn them. There is no portrait. Yeah, there's no portrait mode, so they are wide. Because usually, when I surf on my phone or frequently, I'll go into uh, portrait mode because I just find that easier to read more information. Um, but you can't do that with like the Sony Vita or most of these other ones. It looks like. Yeah, it looks like a Nintendo except the S is. Uh, Excel's just stuck on that. So then we need to think about like multiple columns, it sounds like. Right, uh, possibly. So you could get it in much more detail like that. Uh, the, the thing I was initially talking about was just try, sort of trying to trim the fat on spacing. Um, mm-hmm. So creating, like we, we're using Compass and, and SAS. And so 
uh, we use mixins for things. Uh-huh. Um, so I was using mixins to define, uh, like a simple example would be I have a mixin for a what I call a divider bottom that I put on a lot of things, um, which is a bottom rule or bottom border with you know bottom margin and bottom bottom padding, and then I can use that all over the place. Um, and it sort of makes sense to tack a vertical meta query on there at the bottom that decreases the amount of margin and padding that's on that rule. And then it just very quickly will update everything um, if it's if it's shorter. Right, right. Um, and I guess line height too. And the, oh, sure. The, you know, anything that increases. You can do global stuff. I mean, I think yeah. you would rework the whole typographic hierarchy and just kind of bring everything, scale everything back a bit. You know, sure. your H1s and H2s probably don't need to be super big. You can have right. a little less distinction between your headings and, and things like that. Um, but I think there are a lot of ways to kind of scale things back when the browser is short and, uh, and approach it from a much more global and sort of a extensible approach rather than getting mm-hmm. super specific and redoing all your layouts for short um, screens. I, I think that's a very difficult approach to, um, to maintain. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, particularly when we're talking about this device proliferation problem. We don't actually know what people are looking at it on. We just know that when it's short, mm-hmm. here are some nice ways to, to make it a little better. Well, this like well, design for all these multiple devices and and platforms and um, you know it's it sort of reminds me of like you know for desktop web design for the last you know twenty years we, we've been saying like we design websites for uh, for any browser for any uh, operating system whatever but it's been kind of like a kind of like a, a, a white lie we tell ourselves because we we've always had to rely on like nine sixty pixels yeah uh, and seventy two PPI and now those two things are just gone, right? They're just yeah. Yeah. so now we're like we truly need to be like agnostic and and that's kind of where like I guess responsible design is kind of like our like our, our wake up call, if you will, for that. And the flip side is like you know, we, we're like we we kind of got the tools, you know, the fluid uh, media, fluid grid, uh, you know, all this other uh, you know images and um, and, and topography and also. So we're working on on hammering those out, but. The other side is like not just working on building those, but also the kind of the client relationship of the process, mm-hmm. a workflow with that too. So like, um, you know, it's pretty easy for like a one person shop to be agile, right? And just like, okay, sure. this, is what, this is what we're doing. You know, we're all. You know, so, <laughs> this is what I'm doing. Yeah, this is, this is what I'm doing. I'll the memo and everyone uh, sign on board. Uh, Once we get to we, it's harder. <laughs> <laughs> so, but uh, but yeah, so I was just wondering, like, what, like how is your process in you know, we talked a little bit about the clients and like seeing like if they're on board or they love kind of educational ramp to like get them on board to, for the kind of a responsive what is our approach. But once you have a client, like how do you do you know do a sign off when there's multiple site designs that you have to deal with? Oh, sure. uh, and also, I guess also that that kind of goes to the the cost of like you know is the you know does it you know in the process of designing for that like because usually clients really. Uh, my, you know, my, my limited experience has been like they want to see something visual right away and so that. So it's like, and we talked a little bit about coding in the browser. So I mean, there's like a whole bunch of questions in that. Oh sure, yeah. and this is this is something that I, uh, I'm working on an article right now for for that should be out in a list apart. I think uh, the beginning of October, maybe second week in October. Um, but uh, I could, there's plenty to talk about right here too. Uh, so there, I guess there are a couple of things. One thing that occurred to me before the the client stuff is. The tools are fairly simple. I think you're right. I think one of the tough things is how we're using the tools and how we think about it. And I, I mean, I, we're thinking about this all the time over here, and a lot of really smart people in the web industry are. And sort of why, 
we have to constantly be questioned, why are we doing things this way? And is it actually supporting the process um, and, the, and the final product? Um, or are we just doing this because we're so used to doing it? And that's a really tough question to ask. There, we do so many things by habit. And uh, like you were talking about, just the, the 960 desktop-based design mentality, mm-hmm. um, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right about the, the lie with that, that we were really designing for Macs on our lovely screens on, an, uh, on, on a desktop and then testing to make sure everything else wasn't too broken. Right. And <laughs> doing that in this current environment, it's quickly become clear to everyone that, that we can't just keep doing that. Um, so uh, our process right now is that we are designing using code in, in the browser. And the way we start with that, well, before we actually code or design anything, we make sure we have a really good sense of what the content of the website is going to be and what the priorities are. Um, so we write a specification document with the client that talks about um, design and branding concerns, you know, what's the, the tone of the project and um, what, who's the audience and all that sort of branding-related stuff. We try to define what's, what is the site going to do, so what's the feature list. But we also talk about the information hierarchy of the website. Um, what are the things the site really needs to communicate and what's the order of importance of those things? Um, and what that usually boils down to is sort of a general site list of uh, what's, the, what's the order of importance of content that also applies to the homepage. You know, what are we going to be featuring on the homepage? Um, once we have that, we're actually in a pretty good place to start doing wireframes. Um, and I, we, we just decided that the most obvious way to do responsive wireframing is with HTML and CSS. Uh-huh. Um, you, you create structured semantic HTML of the content in a way that supports the, the order of importance that you've already defined in the, in the spec doc. And, uh, and then you can start working with styling layouts. And we take a mobile-first approach. So we're, we're basically, we have a very narrow column of information or, or width to work with to organize our information, which makes you, it forces you to make a lot of hard choices up front that you, you can't just shove everything above the fold in the slider um, as much as you might want to. Uh, you have to actually decide what's most important and probably put that on top and have that sort of list of stuff. Um, and then you start expanding the browser and every time it starts to break and look horrible, then we put in a breakpoint and, and start working on a new layout for, for that width. Um, once we have that all together, then we have a very good basis for the, the visual design to begin because we've already got our layouts in a format that we can actually work with for our design, right? So instead of, but one of the things we're trying to do is get away from throwaway products where we spend lots and lots of time rendering and developing these things that ultimately we just toss out and build something else. Um, so the initial markup becomes the wireframes and then we start layering design on top of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Somewhere in there, we do a thing similar to uh, Samantha Warren's style tiles, okay. or the the guys at Sparkbox have a, a similar thing. They do a responsive style thing um, that I forget the exact name for it right now. Um, but they both use that as a client deliverable, where they basically want the client to sign off on look and feel before they they get anywhere. Um, we're not doing that. I'm not. I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. My my feeling is that. Just like static mockups are uh, too abstracted away from the final product for client approval, that I think that the style tile thing is also a little bit too abstracted from a real product. And I'm not sure that a lot of clients will be able to look at that thing and understand how that relates to the final site you're designing. You know, they may sign off and say, I like this, but that may not actually help with your final approval. Any. Um, I may change my mind on that later. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, 
but the <laughs> once we do that mostly for ourselves internally just to kind of work out what are some textures and colors and what's the typography we often play with in the in the wireframe but we'll bring that in and just try to get all the basic visual elements together so we have sort of a palette and it's it's really going to be an ugly thing it's not something you'd ever show a client um, it's just our little sketch pad and then we start applying that stuff to the wireframes and building the site design and we bounce back and forth a lot between that and photoshop um, Sometimes we'll take screenshots of the where the code, you know, the code base thing is at, the browser thing is at, and bring that into Photoshop and play with some things and export some stuff and throw it back in the browser. And right. um, it's a much more fluid process. Right. Um, but basically, the idea is that Photoshop isn't the rendering tool; it's more of a sketch pad where we're working with ideas. So the Photoshop document at the end of the process looks horrible. I mean, it's. It's it's a terrible looking thing, and you would never show it to a client. But it's okay. We didn't. We also didn't spend thirty hours adjusting, you know, pixel perfect stuff in something that we would ultimately throw away. Um, so at the end of the process, then we've got this browser based design, right? And it and it functions like a responsive design. It's in the browser. It's doing what the final site will do, mm-hmm. and we just deploy that to a, a URL, um, like a project URL with V one at the end of it. And we send that to the client and say, go look at this in your browser. And we usually tell them, you know, we haven't done any browser testing yet, so stick to WebKit, either Chrome or Safari. You can look at it on your devices. Uh, We've looked at it on iPhones. Here are some problems we've noted that we'd have to fix. Um, And then they just start playing with it. Mm -hmm. And no one's ever signed off on V1 before. But, I mean, if they did, we would just send them an approval form that had the URL listed instead of the file name, like we would have with a Mm -hmm. mock-up. And you know, they talk to us about it, and we do revisions, and then we post V2. But we leave V1 up. Mm-hmm. So just like with mockups, you can always go back to the old version and compare it to the new one, um, both on our side and theirs. Um, and everyone seems to be very happy with that. Uh, we're on our... This is ours. We've, we are about to launch our first site that we did that way, and we're hopefully going to get signed off very shortly in the next few days on <laughs> the second site that we're doing like that. Um, and it's been great. All of our clients just loved it. Um, they find it very natural to, mm-hmm. to interact in the browser like a real site. Right. They don't get that weird halfway thing where we took a mock-up and stuck it in a browser and you know put auto margins on the side and maybe made a couple of things clickable. And Those <laughs> things just confuse the hell out of people because right. it's kind of a website and it's kind of not. Um, but basically, we're not making. We stopped making pictures of websites and started making websites. Is how I feel about it. Right. So, do you set expectations on that V one where you're sort of telling them that the you know the finished visual is not there? That we're talking about content structure organization. Well, on the, uh, actually, by the V one, it looks like the website. It does. That's, okay. that's got that's a full design. Yeah. So the first thing they see is a full design, um, which I I understand is a bit scary for some folks. Um, <laughs> But uh, my feeling about it is we've talked so much about what the content importance is and how the design, what the design should communicate verbally that everybody has a pretty good sense of what's going to happen. And what I often tell clients is, you know, when we get through this process and you see that first design, you're not going to know what it looks like, but you shouldn't be surprised because you know what it's trying to achieve. Uh, and it, it should be in the ballpark. And then we just refine mm-hmm. from there. I, I feel like the first thing we show them is never going to be the last version. Sure. Um, because there are going to be some interpretation problems where we didn't quite get something or, or we had a different understanding of things. Uh, and so then they help us as, as a partner in the design, as someone who understands their business and their, their organization, they're going to help us refine it to something um, that we ultimately get signed off on. Is there um, any kind of earlier sign-off in regards to uh, content, structure? Yeah. The, the know, spec doc gets signed off on. 
mm-hmm. uh, and that yeah that has their, that deals with information architecture and of course there's a site map thrown in there. Okay. Um, they're usually pretty lengthy things. Yeah. Um, they're uh, small sites usually are, I don't know ten or fifteen pages or something like that. But some of the bigger sites get quite long. I think I did a fifty page spec doc once, but that was <laughs> that was a hell of a website. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what, what's interesting is we so the first responsive. The first responsive site we did was our own site because you should always be your own guinea pig. But the, the second responsive site we did was for the Pittsburgh Children's Museum. And that one, we were still doing mock-ups. And I noticed halfway through when we finally showed them that you know they approved all the mock-ups and there were some weird parts where I really wanted them to understand how the menu was going to work. And so I made these mock-ups of like just the menu at four different widths and showed how things would disappear and reappear and, and how that would work. And they sort of got it. and I mean, they signed off on it eventually. Oh. <laughs> and then the, when we first showed them, though, the staging site with all that was the styled, you know, 80% styled version of the site, it was like this veil was lifted. And our contacts there went, oh, that's what you were talking about this whole time. This is great. And they just loved it. Mm-hmm. And, and I thought, like, that's a problem. If we're this far down the pike and they've mm-hmm. supposedly approved all this stuff but didn't actually know what we were talking about until right now, then that's, right. <laughs> I mean, it's good they like it, but that's really messed up. Right. So I feel like, I don't know how much use is a sign-off, an earlier sign-off on a thing that they don't actually know what it is. Right, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tough because I feel like uh, our design process has been kind of rooted in print design. Yes. And that has its problems because I guess, you know, because the clients would, would expect a web site design that looks great right away. And, and so here we have like, you know, this mood board or, you know, color palettes and stuff like that. So it's kind of like, or just a mock up within a browser with you know, auto margins, like you said before. So I feel like mm-hmm. <laughs> I really like the whole like code in a browser kind of approach to it. So it's really kind of a really just short circuits the whole, pro- whole process. I, that's, I mean, I just feel like the, the closer we can get to the medium that, that is our process, the better. Right. Um, and it, there, there are new challenges with it for sure, um, but it, it helps. I think it really helps for designers to know. I was, I was vague on this point before in a, in a, in a blog post, but uh, I think at this point I feel like it's, it's really important for designers who are designing for the web to have at least a rudimentary understanding of code. Right. Um, and by code, I mean the easy code. Uh, HTML mm-hmm. and CSS, sure. not the hard stuff. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't know very much of the hard stuff. Right. Um, that's what co- people with computer science degrees are for. But, uh, but like I designed for the web. Why do I need to know HTML and CSS? Uh, because you're designing for the web. It's, that's, that's, <laughs> how, how do you know how to, how to design it if you don't know what it is? Right. Uh, that's, it just, it, it, it may, I mean, I guess I feel like if you asked any print designer, do you need to understand the printing process to be able to design for print? Any good one, I would hope, would answer yes. Mm. Um, there are so many ways that you can design a print piece that is unprintable mm-hmm. um, or will cost you twice as much money um, or will just you know, drive everybody crazy. Like, I mean, for instance, you can't, you, can't, you can't take the same spot color on a two-color piece and layer it over top of itself three times and set them to you know, uh, multiply at 100%. And, right. and that's going to be fine because that's 300% of ink. There is no 300% of ink unless you're going to do three hits of that spot color and then you just really increase the price of your piece. So mm-hmm. if there are things like that in print design, why wouldn't designers think that there are things like that in web design where if you don't know how the system works, right. you're not going to design it correctly. And I think this is at the heart of the sort of the early 2000s schism between developers and designers, which I mean, it really is still going on right now. Right. The, the, the throw it over the wall approach um, I, I think someone called it in mm-hmm. 
the first issue of the manual. I forget whose article that was, but I, I love that concept where it's just this blind handoff. And you have designers, they hand off their designs to developers, and developers are saying, I can't, I can't build this, or what's this feature? You added this feature. Why did you put that button there? <laughs> the, the classic thing from uh, one of the, the VGET Labs blog posts, it was something like how not to piss off your developer. Mm-hmm. It was like the add to calendar button in the mock-up. And the developer gets it, and they're like, what's the calendar? <laughs> right. There's this huge feature they just invented, right? So right. you have developers getting upset, and then when the developers hand it back to the designers, the designers get upset, and they're they're like, why didn't why isn't that pixel right there? And it it's just because there's a, I think a very a serious gap in knowledge and communication, and and there needs to be more overlap and collaboration between designers and developers throughout the process to get to get that happening. And for that to happen, designers need to know a certain amount of have a certain amount of knowledge of code. They need to be fluent in the medium they're working so that they can successfully work with developers. Do you feel like um, responsive web design has kind of uh, changed the visual uh, design of the web? I mean, in the the fact that it's impacted, uh, because we have to design for all these multiple devices, we're not able to go to the kind of visual detail that maybe we used to do on desktop design? It's it's certainly I've I've yet to see a responsive design that um, has as much Photoshop wizardry as <laughs> the, the fixed width sites do. It's true, and I I'm, I don't think that's a limitation of the technology because really it's not that different. I I just think it's because people's heads are somewhere else right now. Um, they're they're focused on coming to terms with this very different landscape. Um, and so they're not putting the same kind of hours and dedication into these Photoshop things. Um, that, uh, that's what I think. But I, I mean, I think responsive web design as it exists now, it's just the beginning of, of mm-hmm. an approach that's going to allow us to create these truly device and platform agnostic um, content delivery designs. You know, I, I think we're still working a lot of things out. I, yeah. and, I, and I don't just mean responsive images. <laughs> I think we're all still getting our heads around this, and this is the primitive uh, version of it. Yeah, I mean, when you look at a lot of these responsive web design showcase sites or whatever, you kind of see a lot of sites that look the same. I mean, layout, visually, they tend to be simpler than, you know, maybe ones we saw in earlier types of showcase sites. And Mm -hmm. like you're saying, hopefully that's just a temporary thing. While everybody gets their head around responsive web design, once they master that, we can then sort of explore the visual space right. again and get back to you know things that are you know varied looking like sites that really differ from each other and are beautiful and yeah, work I in agree. all these devices well that, that's i mean we had the same problem when css based layouts came out right i mean everybody was like oh they're so boxy because that's mm-hmm. they were we were just you know people were like holy crap we can do columns you know without yeah. tables and so they were working on figuring that stuff out instead right. of how do I tweak all the visual details? And right. we're we're absolutely in the same place right now. Right. Yeah. Um, people. I mean, right now people are saying like, my responsive website is successful because I figured out how to make the menu work, <laughs> <laughs> like right. the main nav work on this <laughs> crazy big site. And, and, like seriously though, I mean, that was a thing with children, the children's museum site we did, where they had a pretty big top level nav, and it took a bit of brainstorming to come up with the solution that we implemented. And afterwards, it was like, awesome! Look at that main nav. <laughs> you know, it works. it works all <laughs> over the place or like the, the calendar that we did on that we've gotten a lot of praise for how we approach the calendar um, 
where we've made it so that uh, things it's not table based, of course, um, and where it you know, on mobile devices or smaller width devices, it's an event list, um, and then it creates a calendar layout out of those um, those semantic chunks, um, and a lot of people are really excited about that. But again, it's like we made the calendar work, yay! You know, it's <laughs> how many calendars have we made? Uh, but those are the success stories right now. Once we nail all that stuff down, and we're not worried about things like you know, like responsive images or how to, how to deal with tables, right, you know, right. you know, a, a, a reasonable data table in a layout, mm-hmm. then, uh, yeah, then, then everyone will, will have the, the headspace and the time and the hours to actually start getting visually tweaky again. That's what I think. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's like a, like, you know, when web 2.0 came out, it was like very stark. Yes. Uh, uh, white space and, uh, like Helvetica or, I don't know what, uh, but I feel like it's web 2.0 again. But with better typography, you know, just, <laughs> right? So. Now we got TypeKit, right? Yeah, we got TypeKit now. So now we're like, oh, okay, let's just throw this down. Like, some- but that's cool. I mean, I'm I'm way into minimalism. I mean, my favorite designer is Joseph Mueller Brockman, so I'm totally down with that stuff. But I, it's there's room for maximalism as well. Right. Uh, it, we'll we'll get we'll get there. So speaking of um, beautiful design, maybe we could switch gears because we're coming up at the top of the hour in about ten minutes. Um, why don't we talk about wood type revival? Um, why don't you explain what that is, how it came to be, and, and what you're doing with that? Sure. Um, so Wood Type Revival is, uh, it was initially a Kickstarter project, and it was to raise money to purchase lost old, well, not lost, but uh, it was old, old wood type, um, very mm-hmm. old. Uh, most of it's over 100 years old, the stuff that we found, um, from all over the world that was no longer existed, the, the typefaces the f- did not exist as digital fonts. And then we could uh, print that type on our press and scan it and then redraw it as a digital font and then give those fonts back to the people that gave us money to buy the type. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was actually uh, the other designer here, Matt Braun, it was, it was his brilliant idea. Um, and as soon as he said it to me, I, I was like, that's genius. We're doing it this week. <laughs> <laughs> and by Friday, we had our project up and running. Uh, and we just, you know, we just put in a few extra hours that week. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, we're both really into letterpress and we love wood type. And it's having a reason to get away from our computers for a few hours a week and play around with letterpress is, is pretty awesome. So for people who are listening to the podcast, is woodtyperevival.com. And so why don't you talk a little bit about woodtype? Because, I mean, I know that a lot of people who know about letterpress are familiar with, you know, uh, metal type. There's lots of that. And when, when, when was woodtype, uh, when did it exist? What, what's the time frame for that? Sure. Well, so uh, the the whole letterpress process in general had its heyday over the course of about 500 years. So from the time of Gutenberg up until the early 20th century, that was the primary form of making printed material. Now, uh, the the individual processes ranged quite a bit, as you can imagine, over 500 years of technological <laughs> development, uh, ranging from you know Gutenberg and monks and stuff like hand inking with little <laughs> pads and having these huge hand presses uh, where they actually just pull a lever that squishes the paper into the type uh, up till the the Vander Cook we have in our office, which is right. from the, the mid 40s. Um, and it's just a beautiful, uh, marvelous piece of machinery. It's, so, can I just interrupt this monks sure. and stuff? Was that one of your band names? No, no, monks and stuff was not one of my. No, I, be a good one. no. okay. Can you, guys, can you guys bleep stuff? I can. <laughs> <laughs> I did have a band name that had the word monks in it. Okay. 
Enough said. <laughs> uh, it's it's creative and strange, but it was it was hilarious. It, it, we only played like three shows, but it was pretty funny. It was a joke band. Cool. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, the, the Vandercook is, it really feels like when it's running and all the moving parts are going, it really feels like the culmination of 500 years of technological refinement. It's, it's, it's just a joy to, to, to watch and work with. Um, the, the, as, as far as type, um, metal type is usually used for smaller stuff. Um, the bigger it gets, the, the more expensive it is. Um, particularly when you know during wartime to produce big heavy pieces of metal type, so you don't really see metal type above, oh I don't know uh, maybe like forty eight point or something like that. I mean you do you can get seventy two point and ninety whatever point uh, wood type, but you just or metal type, but you just don't see it that much. Um, wood type is much much cheaper to make larger because wood, you know at the time is more readily available and cheaper than metal, uh, so they would. Uh, initially hand carve wood type each letter um, and then set it on a press and then ink it and then smush that into paper and that's how you'd make posters and things. Um, and then eventually the technology developed where they were using uh, I think Hamilton um, wood type manufacturing in where's that? Uh, Two Rivers, Wisconsin I think. Uh, they uh, they refined the process quite a bit to the point where people were, they were hand tracing um, scaled up models of the letters and and then that was that had an armature that reduced it down to a smaller act, uh, carving tool that actually carved the wood type. So you, it was like uh, you know you're tracing at a higher resolution, and then you get the smaller version that's where all of your mistakes are minimized uh, because of scaling down. Uh, but that was used uh, a lot in the last couple of centuries for for um, broadsides and playbills and posters and things like that. Um, there's there's a tradition in wood type because of that because they were used so much in posters of trying to outdo itself. Um, you know they would make these wacky wood type uh, <laughs> typefaces, and then they would go up on posters all over cities, and then people would get tired of it, and it would blend into the city again, and then they'd have to make something even crazier the next time. So wood type is gets very distinctive and 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 eccentric in a lot of the designs and. We were trying to look for a balance when we were looking for type of what's the craziest, weirdest stuff we can find and uh, what is then what is just the most representative sort of usable stuff because right. you obviously can't find a use for the really weird stuff that often. Um, we, had, we have one font in the collection that was actually uh, chromatic wood type, meaning that they had it was meant to be printed in multiple colors. Oh, cool. um, so they, they, the colors interact. They have, I think one of them only goes halfway down and has an outline, and then the other one's the fill or something like that. One of them had maybe a partial fill. That's what it was. Um, oh, but wow. you print the background in a lighter color, and then you go back and reset all the type in the other colors type and print the other color on top, um, and that gives you the decoration on top of the fill. And it was, it's, it's just fascinating stuff. That's cool. So you've got, it looks like there's seven fonts now, and you're adding an eighth one, French Octagon, soon? Is that? That should, it's, it's actually already finished. Uh, we're just uh, waiting on syncing everything up with Typekit for the release. Um, Typekit's doing all the fonts for, for WebEase also. Yeah, so French Octagon's next, and we're actually almost finished with the ninth one, which isn't on the website yet, but it's called uh, Cosmopolitan, and it's a really beautiful uh, script font. Uh, but it's a wood-type script, so it has a lot of, it's kind hmm. of a chunky script with right. a lot of neat character to it. Cool. And so all of these are lowercase as well. All these are available on Typekit? Is that... Uh, that's right. Yeah, all of our fonts are available on Typekit, um, and cool. then the tenth one, which will complete our Kickstarter obligation, is actually just borders and ornaments. There will be no letters, um, 
So maybe that one won't be on Typekit because that would be a little weird. But uh, we have a lot of neat ornamental borders and things. A lot of these things are coming from Europe and, and the UK and uh, we have a few things from India. And mo on average, all of our type is at least 100 years old. Oh, nice. Um, so it's, it's some really fascinating looking stuff. So is there... Is there life beyond the uh, Kickstarter obligation for WoodType Revival? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We, we actually were very thrifty with our purchases, and we bought way more type than we needed for 10 fonts. Okay. So even with just that money, um, we've, got a lot of, we've got a backlog of stuff we want to do. Sure. Um, and it, it does, you know, we, make, we, we price them very cheaply because we just want them to be accessible. And because we're not doing full character sets, we, only, we don't make up characters. We only include what we can find in real wood type. Um, so we, we price them at, they're all like 15 bucks a piece, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so we make a little bit of revenue from it. And ultimately, we can funnel that back into more wood type if we ever run out. <laughs> <laughs> so how was working with Kickstarter? Was that a good... It was great. Experience? Yeah. It, was, it was, you know, those guys know what they're doing. It made me a little jealous using the admin side of Kickstarter because it's the difference between, uh, you know, in, in my world of creating client-based websites, you're creating one project over the course of a few months or maybe a year and then launching it. And then you're pretty much done with it. You know, it's built on a CMS and they take care of it. Um, whereas something like Kickstarter, the people working on that are developing the same product year after year and really getting to refine it. And mm -hmm, it really right. shows. I think they have really good people there. It was a joy to work with the admin side. And act we actually started using their WYSIWYG editor on the back end of our websites, uh, which was, uh, was it CK Editor? I think CK Editor is what it's called. Uh -huh. Cool. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I liked it a lot. It's a lot of work. I have to say, if you're thinking about doing a, a Kickstarter project, yeah. um, think really hard about it before you do it. Make sure it's something you really, really like and you want to spend time on. Um, it was not an easy job. I had to pay attention to it and do stuff for it pretty much every day. Oh, wow. Yeah, to it keep seems it like it. I've, I've you know, um, done a few Kickstarter projects that I've supported, given money to, but you know, to keep the momentum going, you know, people are producing videos and updates, and especially yeah. for the people who are you know, actually selling products, uh -huh. whew, when, they, when they're done and they have to deliver those products, I'm sure... Yeah, it's real work. A, a lot yeah. of people didn't really estimate how much it was going to cost or how much work it was going to be to actually <laughs> send stuff out to a thousand people. There was this weird thing that kept coming up, or weird to me anyway, on the with people asking questions. It was just a minority of people, but a few people were asking, um, "What if you have extra money left after you buy all the type? What are you going to do with that money? What if you go past your goal?" Right, and right. I think initially I said, "Well, there are some other things we need to buy. I like we need we're going to get a Wacom tablet to make it easier to um, outline the fonts and everything, but." Um, we 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 might get another press if we get the opportunity, something like that. But you know, if there's any money left over, then we'll just use that to pay ourselves for our time for how long it's going to take to make these fonts. And a few people got really upset about that. Mm -hmm. That you would yeah. the gall that you would use that money <laughs> to compensate yourselves for your labor. But there's a reason we're not done yet with this project, and that's because it takes a hell of a lot of time. Sure. Uh, and <laughs> you so not only is there the time you spend on the promotion of the thing to make sure that you you complete the project, but then you actually have to fulfill your obligation. And yeah, it's, it's tough work. Yeah. But well, people, you, people got fonts, right? For, I mean, oh, yeah. if you supported it, they got the font. So they're really getting product for oh, any for money sure. that they spend to, you know, on And we, so. we made a website for it, um, and there's a credit system. So right off the bat, we gave everybody the total number of credits they would need to buy however many fonts they should have gotten for their level of support, uh -huh. which That's was in itself cool. a bit of a challenge. But uh, there are people still hanging out there with credits because, you know, they got all 10 fonts, and We've only put up seven. Uh -huh. So every time right. we put up a font, they run over and download it. And 
<laughs> Other people are just holding out. They really want to see what all 10 of them are before they buy anything. And I think that's really funny. For only 15 bucks, you know, it's just... Well, how, many, how many supporters did you end up having? Gosh, I'd, I'd have to look at the page now. Um, a fair amount. I mean, I think we raised like 17 or 18,000, something like that. Um, well, so if, yeah, if, if people are listening who don't want to like, you know, I don't know, don't want to spend 15 bucks for a font, which is crazy because they're all, they all look great. I, I love, I love the, the type tools that you have up right now. They're awesome. Uh, but there's, you guys worked with uh, United Pixel Workers, the people who do oh, t-shirts yeah. for everything. And so if, if you buy a t-shirt, I think you get a, you get, do you get a font for free or is that no more? It, then they're, they're all time-based, their t-shirt okay. stuff, or at yeah. least they were at the time. So anybody who bought that initial round, we gave them a free font just for kicks. Okay. Um, but now you can you can still get. I think they still have a few sizes. They right. they just told me they're doing a reprint actually because Sweet. people keep buying them. Yeah. But yeah, we so we had four hundred forty three backers and raised nineteen thousand two hundred and four dollars. Mm. That was the final total. That's so, awesome. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And, and, and a bunch of that goes to Amazon and and Kickstarter. Amazon does sure. the payment processing. So I think we right. got actually fifteen thousand at the end of it, which was our goal. Right. Cool. What what is Kickstarter's percentage? Do you know what they? It was it was evenly split, roughly between it. It varies, I think. Um, depend. Well, no, Amazon's varies based on how many processing requests they have to do. So right, if yeah. you have if everybody gave a dollar, then that's going to cost you a lot more than if a lot. Yeah, you had ten people <laughs> that gave a thousand bucks or whatever. Um, but I think yeah. So I don't know. You could you could maybe figure it out. But I think four thousand bucks and roughly split two thousand for Kickstarter, two thousand for Amazon, out of nineteen. Okay, sure. Cool. That's great. Well, yeah. Well, I think it's a, I think it's a good time just to uh, wrap it up. But uh, one question we always ask uh, our guests is like, where you guys uh, were you, or like, where's your shop? I guess most passionate about in the uh, in the web space, and you can't say responsible design. Oh man, that's tough. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> golly, I mean, certainly the stuff that that I was talking about earlier. I mean, uh, coming up, I think we're really focused right now on coming up with an effective working process for creating responsive sites. Um, mm-hmm. which seems to involve, obviously, a lot of code and browser-based design. Um, but we're working every day on trying to figure out how to make that work better. And there, there is that magic part of the design process um, that where you, you finally come up with something good. Mm-hmm. And figuring out how to do that in a new environment, um, I know for, for Matt Braun, the other designer here who does a lot of that work, um, that's been the, the biggest part of the challenge for him, is just adjusting to a new process and still making the magic happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, you know, we we love the the process stuff and we love the responsive stuff. But we also just really enjoy. If you look at your our portfolio, you'll probably notice that we really enjoy working for nonprofits. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons we well, we started Bearded for a few reasons. One is that we we thought we could we thought we had good ideas and we could execute them if we were given the chance. Um, the other is that we we really wanted to work for clients that we felt good about at the end of the week. So doing a site for like the Children's Museum of Pittsburgh, um, or there's a, a nonprofit here called the Sprout Fund we've done a lot of work for um, that gives micro grants to community members to help improve the community. Things like that that just make us feel like not only are we doing work that we're proud of, but it's for people that, that we want to help. Right. Um, you, it's true that you probably don't make as much money going that route, but that was always fairly low on our priority list. And yeah, I guess you had you guys had beards too, right? Yeah, I, I, right now I'm the only bearded one. Oh, okay. uh, sadly, we we don't consider this isn't sad. We don't consider beards part of the hiring criteria. <laughs> okay, uh, I, we are an equal opportunity 
employer when it comes to beards. Okay. Um, but uh, everybody else, all the other guys here have trouble growing a reasonable beard. Mm. Um, <laughs> it's not their fault. They're just <laughs> genetically challenged. And, uh, and then uh, Lauren, our project manager, uh, also, of course, ha- would have a very difficult time. Okay. So mostly it's just me with the beard. Um, although there is a great esoteric letterpress explanation for bearded. Do you guys want to hear it? Yes. Okay. Uh, so when you look at type, you're familiar with the term typeface. Mm-hmm. Um, type in the world of metal and uh, you know, real physical type has a literal face to it, which is what the ink goes on and what ultimately hits the paper and prints the type on it. That's the typeface. But the rest of a block of type also has anatomy. So you've, you've got the, the shoulder of the type, which is the sort of edge beneath the face of the type. This is hard to describe over audio. <laughs> but you've got a shoulder that's beneath the face um, mm-hmm. that's the sort of top of the main block that then the letter is carved out of. Um, I think that some people call the, the bottom the foot. Um, but, but the important part is that between the face and the shoulder, there's that slope where the metal or the wood comes down from the typeface and goes almost straight down and then into mm-hmm. the, the shoulder. That is called the beard. Uh-huh. Um, so the beard is the, I think of it as the part of the type that sort of lifts it up and supports the, the functioning printing face, the part that everyone sees. Um, but it's necessary to, to print. Without the beard, you couldn't, you couldn't print type. <laughs> um, but it's not it's not jumping in the limelight particularly, and I like to think about that as the the work we do. That people ultimately aren't going, hey, that's bearded. They're just hopefully they're just seeing good work for the for the people we're doing the work for, and then they they enjoy the experience they have on their on their sites. So, uh, how can people follow you? Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, my personal Twitter is Elephant Press, E L E F O N T Press, all one word, and then Bearded is Bearded Studio, B E R D E D. S-T-U-D-I-O, also all one word. Uh, oh, and wood type revival too, all one word. Cool. cool. Well, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. It was really great talking to you and getting into the stuff, especially the type stuff. It was fascinating. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. It was really, it was a pleasure talking to all of you as well. Uh, and special thanks to Chris from Canada for pushing the buttons behind the scenes. You can follow him on Twitter at iChris on your iDevice of choice. And thanks to you, listeners. Uh, It would be great if you could just write us up on iTunes. It does help us get the word out about the show in addition to mentioning it on Twitter and the Facebooks. Thanks, everyone.